Welcome to A Lifetime on Planet Groove, the podcast celebrating one of our favorite albums of all time, the incredible 1992 album by Maceo Parker and his band Life on Planet Groove. I'm Ed, and this is Guy. Hello, Ed. Okay, Guy, so who are we talking to on today's episode? So on this episode, I have the pleasure to tell you that we are speaking to the amazing Vincent Henry, who... Um, you know, we are aware of, obviously, from this album, but if you're not aware of Vincent Henry, he is an amazing um, session musician who's had a... His CV is absolutely mind-blowing when you look at it. Um, he played... He started off in the band Change, and then he has played, at toured and played on records with people like Whitney Houston, Mary J. Blige, Elisa Keys, Amy Winehouse, and Tom Waits. I mean, this that's just, just a handful of the people he's recorded with over the years. And amazingly as well, he's got credits, not just for one instrument, like, you know, a lot of session musicians, but he is credited on all sorts of records with playing saxophone, bass, clarinet, guitar, and others. Um, and that's reflected on Life on Planet Groove, isn't it? Because he plays both saxophone and bass, I think, on, on the album. So so when I spoke to Vincent, you know, the, the obvious place to start with was how he started, you know, life as a, as a session musician. So it'd be great just to go back to the start for you, first of all. You know, you've had a amazing career as a session musician, playing with all sorts of people, but but how did you become a musician in the first place? What what was the the journey for you from being a kid to being a to pro a pro musician? It's you know, my my uh my stock answer to that question is I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just I was curious about music from an early age, since the late sixties. And I would just go from the age of 14, wherever concerts were happening. My mother would be like, where are you going now? I mean, literally, I'd pick <laughs> up the first concert I went to on my own was in 1968 at Madison Square Garden. It was Cream, Buddy Miles, and Terry Reed, the guitarist. Wow. And I'm there, you know, and... uh the kid with my little uptown clothes and everybody's <laughs> around me with tie dye and all this funny smoke going around the air. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and after that, I went and saw everybody, Cream, Santana, uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Sly. I mean, I, I saw everyone, you know, uh, in a short space of time between like 14 and 17 and jazz people, Elvin Jones and Freddie Hubbard and, and then I, I went to a pawn shop. Originally, I was supposed to play guitar, but I, I went to a pawn shop, got a saxophone, played for about a year. And then my cousin forced me to join a band. I was scared. as I was like, they're going to laugh me out of the room. And they said, no, you're in. <laughs> and that was it. I didn't have like aspirations to play music. It just, it just grabbed me and I followed. And so how old were you then at that point? Maybe uh, 17. Right, and then things things just went from there. As in that, did that band find a bit of success early early on, or um, was it just a well, case of playing with all sorts of people at that time? Yeah, we were we stayed the, that that was a band for about three years, and we came up through the ranks playing little block parties and school things. Next thing we knew, we were playing at clubs, and uh, that grew into a thing. And then, uh, and you know, I was I was a uh, 
primarily self-taught, but I went into City College to, to the jazz program, kind of through the side door. Everybody else had more experience than me as far as, uh, you know, formal training. But, you know, the, the band leader liked me. He said, you're in once again, you know, so I stayed there a couple of years. Then I joined another band uh, that had recorded for um, uh, a label called Midland International, RCA uh, affiliate. And uh, it was a bass player in the band really went on to prominence. T.M. Stevens, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, after that, I played a lot in clubs in the Bronx. I had moved to the Bronx on my own. And uh, I had I'd played, I worked five days a week in the hospital and four or five nights a week in clubs and uh, met some great musicians. You know, Omar Hakim used to come and play up there. Uh, Yogi Horton, the drummer also. A lot of great musicians. And uh, after that, got a gig with uh, Stacy Lattisaw, the singer. And then that led to playing in Change. The guy that managed Change saw me there. And uh, I picked up the car guitar a couple of times. I wasn't really a guitarist then, but just to fill in some parts on a tune or two. And he decided I was a sax guitar player and I really wanted the gig. So I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and so that that was that's what led to me being more involved in the downtown scene in New York, for lack of a better description. Yeah. So what did you do at the hospital? I, I was originally what they call a transporter. I just took patients from from their rooms to uh, to their uh, testing, like nuclear medicine or radi radiology stuff like that, and eventually. You know, I had more responsibilities there and I was doing some of the work that technicians would do. And uh, I wasn't supposed to be, but grab that, do that, turn that <laughs> knob. I'm like, OK, that's going to get the job done. I really liked it. I liked working in the hospital. And did you think that that was probably going to be what you would end up doing or, or did you? I didn't. Did the music feel like something that you were the, for enjoyment or did you think that that was going to turn into your career? I knew that I I knew that I was going to be around music, but uh I liked, I liked working at the hospital because it was, it was not a career. It was just, you know, a way I could supplement my rent. <laughs> yeah. There was no pressure, you know, like that's there, the music's there. And they kind of was a symbiosis with that for me at that time. And so when did you start to be, you know, like a session musician and, and start to work with lots and lots of different people and, you know, working in studios? That was more like the early to mid eighties. You know, I had done some sessions before that. There was some people that used to make, they used to record in New York to release singles in the South because then they had more like regional soul and stuff like that. And some of the records, I didn't even know what they were. We'd go, we'd play, we get our little fee and the record would be gone. And we didn't even know what the record was. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, I had a good friend named uh, Pumpkin Bedward in the Bronx, and he's known as the king of the beats, you know. He was mm -hmm. one of the first guys to make beats for, for hip-hop records. Right. So I played on a few of his records, and, uh, you know, he caught, he caught a, you know, they were all of jazz guys because he was good in, like, kind of jazz fusion, too. 
And they were like, what are you doing that for? And he was like, there's something here. There's something here and it's vital and it's not just playing. It's in touch with a culture in the street and I want to be part of it. And uh, he was like that. And so was Larry Smith, the bass player. They did all the uh, Randy MC and stuff. They were great fusion guys, but they know it was a language that related to people's real lives. And, uh, and then after that, you know, you know, after a while, you know, guys, you know, started getting sessions and then they'd start recommending you. Next thing you know, you're getting calls. And uh, that's how it went. Yeah. What was the What was the first time you sort of worked with a, a big name and you thought, you know, wow, this is this is a different level? Well, when, once I joined Change, you know, that led to not only playing with that group, but other, you know, like, I think when it really hit me was when we were recording the Sharing Your Love album, and there's um there's some uh, songs that have a horn section, but I was the only horn player in the group. So you had to augment it with session guys. And then I'm sitting there, and here comes like John Faddis and Randy Brecker and all these guys. And I'm like, wow, I'm sitting in the room with these guys. <laughs> but, you know, it worked out. And then before <laughs> that, I had done another TV thing that was on public television. Uh, and it, and then it was like a lot of people that became uh, well-known the, uh, the screen people, you know, Lynn Thigpen and Reginald Bell Johnson, people like that. And, uh, you know, it was, but the atmosphere in New York then, it was a lot of cross-pollination, like, you know, jazz guys were playing with the funk guys, theater people, you know, CBGB and all that. And everybody was playing with each other, you know. It, it, it was a great time to be in New York, I'll be honest, musically. Yeah, and you've played lots, you've played different instruments, I think. Am I right? You, you know, you play yeah. sax, obviously, but you played lots of different instruments in sessions. Yeah. I know you play bass on part of the Life on Planet group. I mean, right. is, was that a <laughs> conscious thing to, did you try and play lots of d- different instruments or did that just kind of happen because you were, you just picked them up and were interested in them? Yeah, that's it's mostly interest or need of, like, I had a, another good friend that I used to write a lot with, Bruce Purse, and, you know, we'd be up all night trying to uh, make tracks and it was just the two of us, so we had to figure out <laughs> how to play them. You know, I'd borrow, like, Timmy Allen, I would borrow his bass, he'd borrow my guitar because he didn't have a guitar you know, we just sit up and, and figure it out. And then there was also a curiosity about how the different instruments worked. So sometimes I would buy like a, like a ramshackle, you know, like, you know, like a bass clarinet that didn't really work well and get it fixed <laughs> up just to figure out how it worked. And then once I got some sound of it, I'd just use it. And then somebody would say, Oh, I heard that. Can you play it on my records? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Now I know we, we're talking about, Life on Planet Groove, and mm-hmm. I spoke. We've spoken to Stefan Miner, and who who told me that, um, you know, he was a big part of you being involved in yeah. that big and and the tours with Maceo and the the original recordings. How how did you meet him, Stefan, to start with? I met Stefan. Uh, there was a bass player named Melvin Gibbs who had a had a record out with Stefan's label around 1988. That's when I first met him. And uh, so Stefan brought him over to do some gigs in Germany and Austria. And so Melvin had me come and play with him. And that's where I met Stefan at the train station in Munich. 
<laughs> and we just hit it off right away. When we weren't playing, he and I would just hang out. He and another friend, we'd go to clubs and just had, a, you know, we just had an affinity for friendship, you know, right immediately. And uh, so he told me he was doing this record, uh, the JB Horns, the one they did in, in uh, London with a, with a Bobby Bird and all. And so he said, after that, I want to do a single with Maceo when, uh, in the city. So we got together, got to, that's when I, he introduced me to Maceo and we sat down and made a single, you know, and, uh, then Maceo and I hit it off and it was right after James had, was, uh, incarcerated. So Maceo had gone back to James and all of a sudden there was nothing happening. So he would come to New York, uh, and spend time with his brother who was a, uh, a lawyer uh, and a, a professor at Columbia University. And uh, we'd get together and sometimes I'd get them to play sessions. People would call me up, say, can you make this? I said, no, but uh, maybe my friend Maceo uh, uh, can make it. And they said, like, you mean like a Maceo Parker? I said, no, I mean Maceo Parker. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and then, he, you know, he would always look out for me, you know, for several records. You know, he just called me. I'm recording. Here's the time. Be there. <laughs> and so, what was that like? I mean, you, you know, you were a you know session up and coming saxophonist at the time, right? You're then starting to work with Maceo and Pee Wee and Fred, obviously on the trombone, the legends of the legends, of the industry. Yeah. What was that like getting in a room with them for the first time? And the first time, you know, I mean, there's horn sections, and then there's like this is another thing. They were like a singing group. Like you had to mm. really, you you couldn't just be correct. You had to really find their nuances because you were just going to stick out if you didn't because their phrasing and their soul is just one of a kind. And uh, every note was a learning experience, I'll be honest. Where were those first sessions when you played with them? First time I played with them was at the old A&R recording studio. He was doing uh, Roots Revisited. and. Uh, there was a track called Them That's Got, but they were, we were recording everything direct to two track. So there was no overdubbing. And Maceo was playing the lead voice, but they still needed the alto in the section. So Maceo's like, we're down here, A&R. I need you to come play. Same, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I ran down and it was, it was Fred and Pee Wee and Mace, you know, Don Pullen, Rodney Jones. And I'm like, what do I do? And Pee Wee had, <laughs> Pee Wee had written the arrangement because he's, you know, he was like just a genius, you know. Um, first, I went, we went through it once and he was looking at me like, eh. And so then <laughs> they started showing me, you know, because the way they bend and shade notes, you can't just do standard things. You have to really be in there. You have to sing with them. You can't just play. You have to sing your instrument. And after we got it, it was like, it was like being in heaven, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like it. Amazing. And then, so you went on then, you did that album with them. You did the Roots Revisited album with them. Yeah. And then, um, that was that when you started to tour with them? Well, I, I didn't tour with them. Ah. I did maybe uh, three or four more records with Maceo, but only studio sessions. Right. At that time, I had put out a record and then, 
you know, that did okay for a year. But most of my touring between, uh, from that album up to 95 was with either Jonathan Butler or Will Downing. And, uh, I was pretty busy with those guys, but every time I was in town, for the good thing was every time Maceo recorded, I was in town, so I was able to make those records. So how did you end up then on the, the tour and the performance in Germany and Cologne that ended up being, um, you know, Life on Planet Groove, the live album? That was, that was crazy because I, was, uh, I had another good friend that owned a club, I don't know if you've heard of it, called the Café Wa. And it's in the village in New York. And you know, it's where it's, it, his father used to own it back in the fifties and sixties. And it was the more of a beatnik folky club, but that's where, you know, Bob Dylan was, Hendrix was there with, when, uh, Chaz Chandler first heard him, it was in that club. And right. Yeah. That's where I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody, Richard Pryor used to do comedy there. People that were coming up used to be there. And then, in the in in the 90s uh norm had revived it and it was a it's a busy night spot again and a guy went down there and heard him and he invited the cafe wa band to participate in the carnival of venice so we were like in venice for two and a half weeks just playing in these piazzas you know and there were bands all over the place it, it was it was really great how they did it Sometimes they find like interesting buskers and they would hire them to busk around Venice. Then they brought in the Count Basie. No, they brought in the Duke Ellington band. They did. I was like, wow, this is amazing. But in the meantime, Stefan called me and said, we're going to be in Cologne. We're going to do a live record. Where are, what are you going to be? Where are you going to be? I'm like, well, I'm going to be in Venice until this date. He said, great. Cause we don't start until the day after that. I said, but I'm in Venice playing like, uh, Saxon harmonica. I'm not playing bass. He said, Well, just bring your bass, carry it around with you, and then when you finish, come up there. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, I can't stay say no to Stefan and Macio. Those are my guys, you know? No. So I'm 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 in I'm there with a bass, and then I get on a plane and then switch my ticket so I can transfer in Dusseldorf and then get on the train from Dusseldorf to Cologne with my luggage and the horn and the bass and all this stuff. Boom, I'm there, and then we're doing a live record, just like that. <laughs> so you, did you do any preparation or rehearsal at all for it? That afternoon. That afternoon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the venue? In the venue, yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, what, so what, did you, which, what did you play what on which tracks? Because I've never quite been sure in what tracks you were playing bass, what tracks you were playing on sax, half the, whatever. On half the stuff... Uh, Larry Goldings is playing the bass with his left hand. Yes. That's a, yeah. On the first couple of tunes, definitely, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then uh, I'm trying to, Gotta Get You, I'm playing bass. Yeah. Uh, the one with Candy. Yeah. That Addictive Love, I'm playing bass. Yeah, yeah. I Feel Good, I'm playing bass. Right. And then on the Soul Power, like outro. Soul Power, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It starts with Larry and then I kick in. Right. Okay. That that makes sense now. Yes, I understand. Okay. So, so had you rehearsed? You hadn't rehearsed those at all, really. You did a little run, quick run through at the venue in the afternoon. That's that's it. <laughs> that's amazing. And then we recorded, you know, two days. Yeah. And uh, 
And then I played saxophone on Georgia, so yeah. Maceo could play his uh, flute. Right. With with this, with you know, Fred and Pee Wee. So, what are your memories then of of that night? You know, well, the two nights in Cologne. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> I mean, was that just normal for you at that time, just to turn up for a gig like that and and have that such little preparation, or was it? Did that feel a little bit sort of seat of the pants? It was a little seat of the pants, but that that would that would happen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that that that's that would happen, you know. It wasn't it wasn't unusual, right? But but it it depends on who you're doing it with. When you're doing it with guys of that caliber and that rhythm mm-hmm. section, you know, it's it's doable. Mm-hmm. Those guys are. You know. And what were the actual gigs themselves like then? I mean, I know there was the two nights, and obviously sounds like it was great on the record. But what were the two the two concerts like? I mean. The record kind of captures the exhilaration and the enthusiasm of the crowd is really what I remember the most. Mm. They were like bouncing off the roof. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they were bouncing off the roof and uh especially with um what's the one uh where Maceo does that big 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 build up or shake everything hit- you've got. Yeah. I can't even think about it without getting goosebumps. Yeah. You, you mean just, the bit where the saxophone builds yeah, to the, yeah. When the yeah, and everyone comes back in. I mean, that's a, it's one of my favorite bits of music ever made, ever. Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great to hear. I love to hear that. But yeah, it sounds like the crowd were absolutely with you all the way, all the way, all the way. And then the other great memory. I mean, it's just an aside. Is that we were uh, when we were rehearsing, and the drummer Kenwood, there was a window with a gate to the back alley behind him <laughs> and we're playing. And then in, in a little break between tunes, you hear this knocking at the window <laughs> and uh, he looks back and like through the haze, cause the window was like kind of sooty. And there's a kid out there saying, Mr. Denard, you think I could get a lesson this while you're here? <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Come around, leave me. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. I was going to mention Kenwood Denard, actually. You mentioned, you know, the rhythm section, because obviously you were stepping in on bass then. Uh-huh. But then one of my favorite things about the album is mm-hmm. Kenwood Denard's drumming. And there's something about the production of it. It just sounds so good. The, yeah. his, kit, his kit and the way he's playing, it sounds so good. And it it's so sort of front and center, isn't it? The, the drums on, on the mix on that yeah. album. Yeah. How, what was he like to work with? Because he's, to me, he's just one of the best drummers I've ever heard. He's amazing. He's so musical. Like, in, in a lot of ways, you know, he's a great, and he's a great keyboardist too. Mm. So his musicality, you know, he has things he does when he does his own act where he's playing the drums with one hand and the keyboard with another hand. <laughs> and really? uh, Yeah. And like... <laughs> Proficiently, it's not like gimmicky. It's musical. Wow! And uh, so that made a, that made it easy too, you know, to walk in cold and play next to him. And Rodney, you know, Rodney and I have been at, like I mentioned, I went to went to City College in the seventies. We were in school together then. So, but that's the first time I played with him since school. <laughs> wow! So you and Rodney go back a long way. Yeah. So what was that like? What was that like? Did were you still in touch or was it just reconnecting no, for that gig? We hadn't really been in touch for a long time, <laughs> and I'm looking over and there's Rodney. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Was it a kind of like, did you just kind of exchange a look saying, you know, no, it, was a, it, was, it was good. It was good. You know, it was a smell like, look, here we are all these years. Yeah. We bumping into each other again on the, on the bandstand. Amazing. And, uh, and I didn't know, I knew, I knew he could play anything, you know, cause he was funky then in school, mm. but he was like a consummate jazz man, you know? And, but this just shows, you know, what a great musician he is. Cause he could, he could do it all. Yeah. Yeah. He's mm. a phenomenal player. When you look back now at the, you know, the album, mm-hmm. you know, because as I said, for, for me and my friends, it, you know, it made a, a massive impact on us. And you were saying it's one of your favorite, you know, like Shake Everything You've Got is one of your favorites. What does it mean to you, like looking back at that album and that time? Well, first and foremost is just because of how I feel about Maceo to, to be involved with <clears throat> that record. You know, like you're just doing a gig. You, you don't know it's going to what it's going to mean years mm. later. And then to know like over the years now and then I'll meet somebody and you know, whatever I've done this or that, I'll meet certain people and I'll say, Oh, nice to meet you. I'm Vincent Henry. And they'll go, you're on life on planet. <laughs> you know, forget everything else. Yeah. <laughs> you're on that record. You yeah. are somebody. <laughs> <laughs> It's a nice feeling, you know, because it's associated with Maceo also. Yeah. Did Did you go on to work with them more then over the, the the years afterwards? Yeah, you know, most on on on. I think I did about three more albums, but you know, all section stuff. Uh, I can't remember the, all the names. One is made by Maceo. Another one is Dal M. So. Other than uh, Roots Revisited and uh, Planet Groove, there were those three, and which were great because, you know, great sections that he had put together and great arrangements. The first one was Fred's arrangements, and then it was Greg Boyer, the trombonist, that uh, did the other ones, who's another, like, I would say genius musician. He was, it's crazy what he can do. Did you do any more live performances then, or was that it? That was the one. That's the last the one... time I played live with him. Everything else ah. was studio. So it was that. It was just those two nights that you played yeah. with that band, and then that was it. That in was terms it. of live. Yeah, and then that's I was... amazing. What what a, what a thing to be drafted in for. Yeah, and I, you know, Stefan, you know, he gets great ideas, and you just got to go with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like if you if you say this is going to work i'm there you know and i got on went to cologne and yeah it was amazing well it's, it's an absolutely incredible album to be on and yeah it still gives me a lot of pleasure listening to it now you've had an as I said at the start you've had an amazing career working with all sorts of people i, mean, I know you're on the amy wine winehouse oh, records oh my little sis man yeah how was that experience awesome because I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Daptone fan as well, so okay, that must have okay. been that must have been amazing to work on that album. It was, you know, and and all, you know, like you know, my my uh, connection to Amy is Salam Remy, the producer, mm. and we played on every every album, not just you know, we did uh we did all uh, all the records. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm at least on. F- at least 50% or more of all her recorded output. And, uh, you know, when we first met her, she was just, you know, 19. She was just a kid, you know? Yeah. She, uh, and then she got a lot, you know, what I mean, I don't have to go over 
or hardships, but yeah, th- the part that disturbs me the most is that that's what's always highlighted. Yeah. And like, we didn't know her that way. When she came to work with us, she had a, a guitar, a pad, and a pencil. And mm. she went to work. <laughs> and she'd hear the track, and she'd sit down, give me a minute. She'd write. It was amazing, because I thought she was an amazing lyricist, you know. Yeah. She Double, was. triple entendre, the, hu- the, the sense of humor, even, uh, even during dark, you know. And, uh, she, you know, she didn't do all this punching in and overdubbing. She sang once or twice. That was it. <laughs> she nailed it. And then we'd build around it. But uh, we were like the, you know, the big brother, uncle guys. She, yeah. she, she felt, and we, she felt really safe around Salam. Yeah. But I, we, I really miss her. She was a good, yeah. good person. She's a great talent. Yeah. yeah. Great person. And then you, and uh, for British uh, or people like me, you know, you worked a lot with Hugh Laurie, haven't you? Who is someone yeah, who's yeah, yeah. very well known here. Another great man. Yeah, how did you get involved with him? Well, it's funny how things connect because after the Amy records, I got a call from uh, Tom Waits, of all people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's like, I heard you on the Amy Winehouse records. I like your sound. Would you be interested in touring with me? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) that's a call I didn't expect. So, (laughs) you know, we did that tour, which was another iconic genius kind of guy. Yeah, Sonic, it, Sonic, a unique Sonic individual, you know, and great lyricist and writer. But then uh, there was a keyboard player named Patrick Warren who also did the tour. Then he got to get, he started working with Hugh. So he recommended me right away and uh, came in and Hugh liked what I was doing. And, you know, I was with him through most of uh, that musical part of his uh, career. And that was that was a great band. He was a great person to work with, hmm. and uh, one of the most uh, conscientious band leaders I've ever known. He really cared about everybody that was working hmm. with him. Good man. And so, what are you? What are you big? What are you working on now? What's what's coming up? Um, mostly I haven't been doing a lot. A lot. In fact, I just did a gig this weekend up in D.C. Three nights at a club, jazz club. There's a pianist named Alex Bunyon, who's an old friend. And I worked with him as much as possible over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, with Salam, you know, it's been more visual stuff. We just, uh, he's been doing a lot of TV and movie stuff. And uh, we did that uh, Billie Holiday film, which won a mm-hmm. Grammy. So that was nice. And, uh, you know, he did both six Sex in the City movies which uh, he saw fit to include me on when he's tracking. <laughs> and uh, he's another one, salt of the earth. You know, he he just, and, and a lot of times it's just the two of us in mm-hmm. a room with an engineer and a bunch of instruments. And we're looking around, all right, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> and we start picking up stuff till it works. And he, he knows what he wants, though. So uh, I, uh, I'm really indebted to him for a lot of the recorded work. How did you hook up with him in the first place? I knew him since he started because I knew his dad. His dad mm. was a, a great mu- a musician, guitarist, and a great music business guy. And and also another one of my best friends, Anderson Sainsbury. And they all 
worked had studios in Manhattan. So I'd go over there and record with them. And then when he went to Miami, I started going down there for trips, you know. And I'd stay for a week or two and we'd work on a bunch of stuff. In fact, the first one was Amy in 2003. Mm-hmm. And since then, there's been one after the other, Nas and uh, I can't remember how many. Nelly <laughs> Furtado and I can't even remember because <laughs> he got me on a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. So you you know you've had a you've had a great career as a as a as a session musician, live musician. What do you think's been the sort of secret, or what what do you think has made you allowed you to have that sort of career? Obviously, there's the music side of things, but it, are there other things about you know the way that you've worked in the industry that has allowed you to have such a great career? Actually, it comes right back to like your first question. I don't know, <laughs> but I think I just, I don't think I'm like the most accomplished musician in the world necessarily. I just love music. You know, I love the way it sounds mm-hmm. and, you know, I try to approach it, not just with a, an ability. I try to approach it with a curiosity as well as whatever ability I may or may not have, you know, I'm like, how could, instead of saying, this is how this should sound, I'm always going, how could this sound? Mm. And I just try to stay open, especially when the producers or, or the writer or, or the artist is trying to find something. I just try to try to be, stay open to what they're trying to find because it's their record, you know, mm-hmm. and try to help them find what they're looking for in the process. Brilliant. And just finally, just thinking back to, you know, Fred and Pee Wee and, and Maceo, what's... um. Are you still in touch with like Maceo, Fred, or you know, did you stay in touch with any of them afterwards? Or Most, mostly that- Maceo, Maceo, we would stay in touch, you know, whether there was music happening or not. And yeah. and my my youngest son is named Maceo, you know, oh. after him. Well, okay. <laughs> and is he is he uh, showing any promise on the uh, the saxophone? No, he doesn't play music. He he was <laughs> he was producing and managing both both of my sons got into music my, my oldest son josh you know he's a performer and he's written and he's done some hip-hop recordings and stuff and uh maceo had some artists he was working with with their careers more as a on the business side but they're all you know music is just part of family you know and my like like josh he's still like when he when he does perform he he just doesn't like to have DJs. He's got to have a band, which, you know, most people, most of his peers work with DJs and tracks, but he, he's like, I can't do that. I got to hear the band. I need dynamics. Yeah. So, I mean, calling you your son, Maceo, Maceo obviously had a, made a huge impression, made a big impression on your life. Huge impression, you know, and, uh, you know, you think one thing, you know, you've been hearing Maceo all your life since the sixties playing and James Brown calling his name. And I guess if I had to personify who I thought he would be, he was not who I thought he would be. He was just this, you know, he's, he's just as open and accessible as anybody you want to meet. He's just the nicest guy in the world. I'll be honest. One of the nicest people I've ever met. You know, we just hit it off just like that. He's like, come on, we're friends. <laughs> Well, that feels like a, a nice a nice note to finish on. Okay. So, so Vincent, thank you. We appreciate it so much. You know, thank we love you. your work. Love your work on 
Life on Planet Groove and everything else that you've done. So thanks for having me. It's, it's nice to talk to people that you know that appreciate the past you know, and all you know everything that's involved in it. Thanks, Vincent. All right, thank you, guy. Oh, wow. I mean, talk about the impact someone can have on your life, the impact that Maceo had on his life. If he named his son Maceo, I think that says it all, doesn't it, Guy? It does, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it was so nice to hear him talk in such, you know, warm terms about Maceo. And yeah, to to call you your child, to name your child after someone, means that that person has made a hugely positive impression on your life. And that you know, I couldn't believe that we just he just threw that little detail out at the end, um, and I was kind of I was kind of speechless. I'm sure I'm not sure you picked up on that, but I was kind of speechless at the end there when he said that. I was just like, wow, okay, well, that just shows you the not not obviously just the impact of this album, but that whole experience for Vincent, um, obviously was so important to him, and you know it really shines through, doesn't it, in terms of the glowing terms he was talking about the whole that whole period of because it's weird with with Vincent. Uh, you know, he obviously he performed on the or he recorded a lot of stuff with Maceo, but it felt I think those were the only the gigs for this album were the only gigs that he did. I think that's it. <laughs> he chose the right ones, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, he chose the right ones, and I love I I absolutely loved that bit when he was just describing or the the, the rehearsal time or the lack of rehearsal time for, mm-hmm. for this gig. He basically rocked up on the morning. They did a bit of a noodle around in the afternoon <laughs> in the Stadtgarten and then then did the gig. Yeah. I love that. But as you said, playing with the people that you're playing with, you know, they're just, um, you know, not there to mess about. They're there to play. They're just with the, surrounded by those amazing sort of musicians. You can you can do it that way, can't That's you? That's it. That's it. Yeah. And I think no, you know, none of this rehearsing that people like us need, Ed. No. Straight, into, <laughs> straight onto the stage. Like Kim as well. Kim said the yeah. same thing, didn't she? You know, just turn up, walk onto the stage, off you go. Fantastic. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things I've enjoyed so much about, you know, all of these interviews and, and everything we've been doing with this show as well, just finding out, you know, those little details, those little gems, but also what you're talking about before, just those connections. Who knows who, you know, who was already working together, what sort of relationship they had, you know, ongoing. Kim talking about her funky uncles, Vincent talking about, you know, um, the, the friendship that him and Maceo have had, you know, all these little, who, who, who went to college with who, who was in which band before and who, you know, suddenly saw each other years and years afterwards. It's just all, yeah, um, been uh, just amazing to find that sort of stuff out. Yeah, and that kind of blew my mind, that whole thing about him, that Vincent and Rodney were at music school together, essentially, weren't they? And they'd not really, they'd not, been, they were friends but they weren't in touch and then they just sort of a glance across the, the, <laughs> you know, the, the venue it's like oh we're here now you know so that I love that it's just so you're right it's all these little nuggets of information and I, I have to say I, that little bit about the kid opening the window and, and asking Kenwood for a drum lesson <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's what we came for that's why we 
that's what I wanted. That's the kind of stuff I wanted to know with this podcast. I mean, so much we've learned and I'm so thrilled that we've been able to speak to people like Vincent and Kim um, and Stefan, everyone and Natasha. It's yeah. just all those little nuggets of information that go into, you know, how this stuff was made is just so fascinating and so, so nice to hear it from them, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, as well as that, I was so glad you got the chance to ask him about you know, other parts of his career that were just so interesting to learn about as well. And, you know, I think I knew he had a, you know, a couple of credits with Amy Winehouse, but just, it was just nice to hear his perspective, you know, talking about that kind of young kid who was, who was there to work and what an amazing musician she was. And, you know, something that's sometimes, you know, overshadowed and, uh, you know, other reporting about um, Amy Winehouse's life. So that was just, yeah, really nice to hear as well from someone, you know, who worked with her that closely and got to know her a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So massive thanks to Vincent you know, really appreciate him giving his time so much. He was so, as I'm sure you everyone, you know, you can pick up from the interview, he was so warm and friendly and happy to talk. So, yeah, an absolute pleasure to speak to him. So thank you, Vincent. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and thanks to everyone for listening. Another great episode, in our humble opinion. <laughs> you can get in touch. You can get in touch with us if you like. Uh, we're on a lifetime on planetgroove at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter as well. Um, please get in touch. We'd love to hear anyone's thoughts on what we're doing so far and uh, we'll, we'll incorporate those into an episode if we get them. So, yeah, thanks again for listening and thank you, Ed, as always. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week, guys.